me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 13, I chatted with angel investor and entrepreneur Balaji Srinivasan about the rise of cloud cities, the Oregon Trail generation, a decentralized model for citizen journalism, why crypto is still underrated, and the best piece of advice he's ever received. Balaji was formerly the CTO of Coinbase and a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. He was also the co-founder of Earn.com, Council, Teleport, and Coin Center. He holds a PhD in electrical engineering and a master's in chemical engineering from Stanford University, teaches the occasional course there, including an online MOOC in 2013, which reached 250,000 students worldwide. He was the first person in my Twitter feed to sound the alarm on the global pandemic back in January, something I'm personally very grateful for. Balaji is a truly original thinker who's unafraid to speak his mind and someone I've learned a lot from just by following him on Twitter. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Balaji Srinivasan. Balaji, thanks for taking the time to join me on the Paradox podcast on your Saturday, no less. To kick things off, I want to start with a question. I have this perception, maybe it's perception and reality or some combination of the two. It feels like things are accelerating and the pace of change is accelerating. What's an area of change that you're most optimistic about? And what's an area of change that maybe you're more pessimistic about? So what I'm optimistic about is technological acceleration for biomedicine. Because of COVID, I think we're going to see a radical push towards, for example, things that were blocked for a long time, like telemedicine in the US due to regulatory barriers have now been pushed forward. And, you know, genetic testing, for example, that's now something that's on people's minds. And people are realizing that aging is the number one cause of death and actually also a risk for COVID. So I think we're going to get more energy on on things like life extension. David Sinclair of Harvard has, has talked about this. So that's the area I'm most optimistic about. I feel like we've had a huge positive change in that. What's the area of change I'm most pessimistic about? Well, it does feel, I mean, this is certainly an observation that's not novel to me, but it does feel that the entire you know 20th century is ending and there were aspects of that order which were passable and indeed pleasant and good you know most people who grew up in the US you know over the last 30 40 50 years had a reasonably good time of it and now i'm not sure that we're going to have a good political order in the sense of there's conflict between folks there's a lot more polarization as many people have noted and the general trajectory of the West, if folks look at where it is relative to Asia, it's not necessarily heading in the right direction right now. So, so those are things that I'm more pessimistic about. Yeah, and just to synthesize those two thoughts, both the thing you're optimistic about and negative about, maybe the connective tissue is that it has to do with institutions, right? Institutions sort of crumbling a little bit. And on the optimistic side, right, we saw you know, the FDA was blocking a lot of innovation on the health side of things. And the pandemic sort of forced our hand to start to cut a lot of that red tape and bureaucracy that was slowing things down. And so that's an example of an institution being in the way and some reform happening that was sort of unexpected, but actually very positive. But then on the other hand, to your point around the 20th century ending, it feels like you said, a lot of these institutions that kept order, kept peace, kept things relatively stable during the last 30, 40 years, those are crumbling too. And so we're dealing with uh, crumbling of institutions that has both positive and, and negative impact. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it would have positive impact if we have a, a better alternative on the other end. You know, if you disrupt Blockbuster and you have a Netflix or you disrupt BlackBerry and you have an iPhone or you disrupt Barnes and Nobles and you have Amazon.com, 
then that's a positive disruption. If you're just disrupting something and you don't have an alternative in place yet, then it might not necessarily be a positive change. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of that gets down to having a positive vision for the future and not only having the vision, but the wherewithal and the will to execute on it either within the private sector, whether it's building a startup or innovating within an existing company, or even in the public sector, just having the ability to innovate in the governmental sphere, which seems increasingly hard to do. So totally hear you there. I think switching gears a little bit, I just want to get a little bit of background for the audience. Could you share a story from your childhood that sort of strongly influences who you are today? Yeah. When I was in high school, I came across the Feynman lectures on physics. And there are a few books at that time that were influential in my worldview. There was, you know, the Feynman lectures. There was a book by Robert Canigal on Ramanujan called The Man Who Knew Infinity. There was Lee Kuan Yew's book From Third World to First. Those are all things that have kind of influenced my worldview. I think something I was impressed with was when we finally got an internet connection and I realized that there were way more books like that out there that I hadn't read. I mean, obviously the Feynman lectures are are amazing, but I don't think I realized the extent to which it was an open world rather than a closed world till the internet really started working. And that's funny, you know, we're now having generations that have grown up that have never known a time before the internet. And there's this concept of the Oregon Trail generation, Hmm. which is that group of folks who, when, you know, we we grew up, we played Oregon Trail or whatever in the computer lab in middle school or high school, but you knew what offline was. Like, you know, when we grew up, there was a phone book, there was, you know, like a white pages. I think, imagine that, like a list of everybody's phone number, (laughs) (laughs) right? Which you consider mail to everybody. It would be considered a huge privacy violation today, right? Yeah. But, you know, conversely though, a search engine at that time, being able to stalk anybody, that was considered a privacy violation back then for a while, right? Knowing something about somebody online before you spoke to them was considered kind of weird and and what have you, right? So something I think about a lot is A, how much I realized the world was then an open world, and then B, how some of the mores from then are flipped now, and things are so different. The daily rhythms of life are so different than they were in the 90s, even if much of the built environment is the same. Yeah, it almost feels at times like we sort of live in the internet. We live in the cloud. We have these virtual avatars that we're sort of tending to. And then our offline world is sort of like incidental. And you hear this reference all the time, obviously, in relation to Twitter, where it's like, oh, well, Twitter's not the real world. But then you can make the case that things have flipped. And actually what happens on Twitter and the cultural discourse there is actually having a direct impact on the real world in a very meaningful way. I think one other interesting thing you said, you mentioned the Oregon Trail generation. And I think what was interesting about that game almost as a metaphor is it's obviously a story about people traveling West, kind of that pioneering spirit. And I think what I certainly didn't realize when I was playing that game in maybe fifth or sixth grade in the computer lab, because I don't even think I had internet yet in, in fifth grade, maybe sixth or seventh grade, we got it. But we were sort of on the cusp of our own pioneering journey, which was sort of up into the cloud, right? Right. And I, right. I don't even think we realized how tectonic of a shift that was going to be in our yep. culture. But the Oregon Trail is sort of the perfect sort of microcosmic metaphor for what we were embarking on kind of in the mid to late 90s, looking back on it. Yes, I think that's true. I think people don't appreciate the extent to which the domain name system was really the reopening of the frontier. Exactly. In the sense that, you know, like the thing about the frontier was characterized the US up until 1890. And one of the aspects of it was it presented a degree of equality of opportunity because at least in theory, anybody could go out West and take a plot of land and turn it into something, into a farm, into a building, mm-hmm. into, into something of some kind. And the domain name system is like the V2 of that where anybody can register a domain and you can just start building. There's no building codes. There's nothing that stops you from building. You don't need to get any license from anybody. You can just form pleasing configurations of electrons with your own hands. And that's completely different from the physical world where to even build like an extension to your house or to build a shed or something, you have to get permits and and there's, there's a deadening effect, right? So that's very, very powerful, the concept of like permissionless innovation, simply because if nothing else, even if permission was 100%, but it intrudes a day or two days or whatever of delay, that kills the funnel, kills the conversion. You know, Somebody might not have set up Google.com or what have you. Maybe not Google is not a great example because it was a long-term project. There's plenty of things that were just side projects that would not have gotten started had there been extra friction on them at the beginning. So DNS kind of reopened the frontier. 
And I think that the next step after that is going to be virtual reality. That's fascinating. I have a neighbor who's trying to build like a pergola and the amount of hoops that he's jumped through to build a pergola in his own backyard, it shows you the level of friction that gets added in the real world. And like you said, let's say two people bought two domain names in 1998. Whether that turned into the digital version of just an empty piece of desert in Nevada or Las Vegas was sort of entirely of your own making because of the permissionless nature of the ability to build on the internet. So that's such a fascinating way to think about it. And actually, it's sort of a great segue into what I wanted to ask about next, which is that I've heard you talk about both on Clubhouse and also Twitter about this notion of cloud countries or cloud cities. And I think you summarized it really well in this tweet, which said, you know, how to start a city, build a community in the cloud, organize the economy around remote work, enforce laws with smart contracts, practice in-person norms of civility, simulate architecture in VR, eventually crowdfund territory, and materialize the city into the real world. Can you unpack this idea of yours and, and where it originated? Sure. I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I'm going to be writing this up more and more. I wrote up something on this back in 2013, but essentially the idea is that I think this is the next step for technology after starting new companies. Or to be more precise, Start a new company, Google, start a new community, Facebook, start a new currency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, start a new city, that may be what's next. And the key thing here with this particular set of bullets is you can start a city cloud first. Mm -hmm. And that's very different than, you know, everything that people normally think about where they normally think about, okay, where are you going to get the land and how are you going to build it and, and so on and so forth. You actually start with the people and the culture first. And you do the architecture in VR and you've got something which you de-risk, right? Because you're doing it virtually first. And mm -hmm. that allows for a much wider funnel. And it means that, you know, just like, you know, whether you think this is good or bad, cryptocurrency brought lots of people into thinking about finance and thinking about economics and, and micro and macroeconomics. A lot of people became, you know, semi-pro economists and traders and financiers in the same way that, you know, social media turned a lot of people into publishers. I think that VR is going to turn a lot of people into architects. I hadn't even really thought of it that way. That seems like a great application for VR. Uh, I feel like VR is still searching for its ultimate application and maybe that's what's kind of coming around the corner. You know, it's interesting because obviously I think we both live in California. I don't think a week goes by where I don't talk to a Californian who's learning with the idea of leaving the state and going somewhere else. And maybe it's 10% probability, maybe it's 20% probability. But I think when you have, like we said earlier in the conversation, we have things that are broken, systems that are broken, institutions, state, local, federal governments that are broken in different ways. People do think about, okay, what is my escape hatch? What does that look like? And I think the idea of escaping into the cloud first to organize something that's better before sort of dropping back down on the land to actually create something it is a fascinating way to think about the new model of creating cities. If you think about the existing cloud communities, whether it's crypto or whether it's any others, are there any that you're particularly bullish on sort of making it to land first as an actual real city? Or do you think of it in a slightly different way? That's a good question. So at least the particular methodology that I'm talking about here is in a sense something where you could apply it to any online community and you could turn a community into a virtual city and then some fraction of those you might materialize in a physical place. This is what happened, by the way, in the 1800s US, you know, like you had these sort of communes and whatnot arise in the Midwest. I think that some of the stuff that Mark Lutter is doing with the Charter Cities Institute is, is really good and worth studying. Some of the stuff that uh, Muya is doing with newafricanrenaissance.com. He's Muya, S-M-W-I-Y-A-S on Twitter. I think that's really awesome. Oh, and then Patrick Friedman uh, as a fund, which is working on this. Some of these projects are pretty interesting. And any, any one of them, I'm not sure whether they're going to succeed or not. But I think as a, as a whole, this space is starting to see some good energy. Yeah, it is promising to see. And I think I saw a projection that over the next, I don't know, some number of hundreds of years, we might see 500,000 brand new cities. I think the lion's share of them would probably be in Africa and Asia, as opposed to in North America. But I think there's still a lot of land in, in North America where you could build tons of new cities, especially if you took this cloud first approach. So I hope it's not limited to one corner of the world. It makes sense to go where sort of the regulatory burden is the least in terms of innovating at the city level, like you said before. What would some of the key benefits be of dwelling in a cloud city? So let's just do the thought experiment where we zoom 20 years in the future and these exist in various different forms. What would some of the benefits be of living in one? 
And how do you think traditional cities, let's call them the incumbents or, you know, whatever, the incumbent San Francisco's and Moscow's and London's of the world would react to these brand new cities that are springing up all over the world on a cloud first basis? So I think, well, first, simply being able to start a new city, you know, if you have one innovation in that city, for example, you put a line through, you know, the regulation stopping self-driving cars, right? Or you make it a, a city that is highly friendly to stem cells, right? You don't necessarily need funding for the city. What you need is sort of the absence of a barrier. And that doesn't necessarily cost you anything. You kind of jettison, let's say, outmoded 20th century regulations, similar to the concept of special economic zones and how successful they've been in Asia. So some of these new cities, the first one you do, you just do, you know, something as similar to, I don't know, Levittown or something very standard, just to show it can be done. You know, you don't Mm -hmm. want to be very fancy because to just simply materialize something out of the cloud is non-trivial the first time you do it. But once you've done that a few times and you feel that the physical logistics and the construction process and, you know, the yield of getting people to migrate digitally to physically, maybe it's only 10% of those who are in the cloud actually come to the land. Once you have all those kinds of parameters, you know, at least at a reasonable level, then you've got to handle on the logistics of the operation. Then I think you should start to think about talking to local and, you know, state and federal and national governments about, hey, before we build the city, because that's the thing that you can have jurisdictional choice we can materialize this in one of 700 places. Okay, before we build it, why don't we get a memorandum of understanding or a letter of intent with the government of this area that says it can be a special economic zone or a special innovation zone that various regulations don't have to initially apply in this area. I think that's very new. That's a new idea. Completely. Do you think there could be new ownership models around cities? I'm almost thinking of like a new cap table for a city. It feels like right now we have this system where if you're a property owner and your city's doing well, there's lots of appreciation. You see the appreciation in the price of your home. That's kind of been the model that we've had for decades or hundreds of years. Do you think there's an alternative model where maybe it's crypto-based or or, or whatever, where actually ownership in the city can be purchased at a low entry price for those that are at the frontier and and move first either into the cloud or or from the cloud to the land? What would that sort of look like? Yeah. So I've thought a lot about this and basically a new city as a crypto REIT. So here'd be the critical concept. The critical concept is it's sort of like a Singapore style combination of ideas from you know, left and right. For example, Singapore forces everybody to save in an HSA, a health savings account, but everybody can then spend from that HSA as if it was like a bank account or a credit card. It's not restricted, you know, in terms of spending Uh, or rather it's capitalistic within medicine, but you're forced to save for medicine. Okay. Mm -hmm. So insurance still exists, but, but that's like their first line of defense. So similarly, something I've thought about is if you did a new city, you do it as a crypto REIT where people do not own their own land that they're on. Instead, they own a certain number of shares of the city as a whole. Hmm. Who owns the land in that model? Like the corporation that is basically building the city or, or could it. be frankly the, you know, it, it could be on chain. You know, we have to figure out just the, the interface between the chain and, and, and the land, but let's say a corporate entity. Here's the point. What that means is as the city grows, you have equity alignment with everybody else in the city. Yeah, there's aligned incentives in a way that right now, obviously, we see in San Francisco, the misaligned incentives between the NIMBYs and the YIMBYs on building more housing or not. And we sort of end up with this deadlock politically around being able to do anything. I think in this alternative universe where these cloud cities exist and are proliferated across the world, you have potentially much more aligned incentive structures around choosing to do things, whether it's adding more housing to the community or changing the nature of the community or changing the competitive advantage of the community from an economic standpoint, it seems like the incentives would be much more aligned. This actually reminds me of an interesting Twitter interaction maybe three or four years ago with Mark Andreessen, your former partner at A16Z, back when he was tweeting. And the debate was like, is Silicon Valley going to remain tied to location or not? Or will a thousand Silicon Valleys bloom all over the world? I think We've gotten the sense over the last three or four years since then that location is getting much less strong of a pull, even though there's still a network and an ecosystem that is still pretty strong. But I think the point that he was making in that Twitter conversation was, yeah, you could have other Silicon Valleys. And one Silicon Valley is the biotech Silicon Valley because the regulations around that are very pro-innovation. And then one city is the crypto Silicon Valley. And then one city. So it seems like that aligns pretty neatly with your concept of cloud cities. And at some point in the future, 
these two ideas collide. And that's how maybe Silicon Valley saves itself from becoming this place that's just choking on its own cost of living because it can diversify across the world. Maybe that's an optimistic take, but. Yeah. So, so I think that, you know, like the Hegelian dialectic thesis, antithesis, synthesis, right? So thesis is, it's actually pretty good to have just a single place that people can go, right? Antithesis, well, there's a huge incentive to physically leave Silicon Valley and San Francisco, especially now, thanks to what's basically happened with COVID and whatnot. It's almost like a arm wrestling match where one arm just completely went slack, right? Yeah. You know, the the only reason to be in San Francisco and 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 Silicon Valley was the physical social network because, you know, it, it, the physical plant was not that attractive. I mean, I guess if you if you like the outdoors or something, there's there's definitely something to that. What was unique was the physical social network, like the the people who were there. It wasn't like, for example, there was platinum in the hills of San Francisco. And that was a critical thing that was keeping us there, right? This is a really important point, by the way, you know, in the 1800s, when you're talking about mining or farming or something like that, that's extremely location-based, very much so. Either the land is good for it or it's not. Whereas technology, internet stuff can, in theory, be done anywhere. And now it is because, you know, the huge push for remote work thanks to COVID. So going back to that Hegelian point, the thesis, antithesis, synthesis is, I think we're going to have, you know, the internet is the next Silicon Valley. And in many ways, folks in tech really spend 12 hours a day online anyway, right? So it's not like such a huge leap to think about the internet as the next Silicon Valley. Or, you know, even more broadly, though, I think the internet is to America what America was to the UK or the UK was to Greece. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Unpack one, that idea more because that's a fascinating right. thought. So one way I think about that is in 2013, I taught this MOOC course and I had, you know, 250, 300,000 students and most of them were outside the US, but they all spoke English. And I noticed something very interesting about my interactions with them. They didn't know things that you would think of as American references. For example, they didn't know the New York Knicks they didn't know hot dogs or they may have heard of hot dogs, but they weren't like extremely familiar with it. They didn't know physical landmarks like the Washington Monument or something like that. But what they did know was at the time, uh, good guy, Greg and scumbag Steve, they knew Reddit memes. <laughs> yeah. All right. And they talk about this stuff with an accent, but they were completely familiar, totally conversant with internet culture. And that's when I realized that the English speaking internet you know, Reddit and Hacker News and Twitter and so on is to the physical US, what the physical US was to the physical UK and the physical UK was to, to Greece. It is something that it's also English speaking. Well, okay, I know Greece wasn't, but you know, it's, it's English speaking and it certainly shares cultural roots, but mm -hmm. it's as if, you know, folks went so far west that they ended up in the cloud. Right, like that's, starting in San Francisco. Fascinating, yeah, that's interesting. You think of a visual metaphor of the cloud sort of opening up above San Francisco, and then a bunch of people going into the cloud. Right, you ran out of continent, but we reopened cloud. And how far we can push that metaphor? VR really opens it further, because the thing about the cloud is it's a frontier that's a non-contentious frontier. The land is truly infinite. You're not taking it away from somebody else when you register a new domain name or set up a new ENS. You know you're truly creating value from nothing and you're just hitting keys on a keyboard. So it's harder to argue that you were depriving somebody else of that territory. And that's very powerful, you know, a non-rivalrous frontier. And I think we can do that with VR and the internet. I think we can then potentially do that with the sea. I think we can ultimately do that with space. And, you know, this is something I think a lot about, by the way, you know, the four places you can build, the land, the internet, the sea, and space. And, you know, the land has 7 billion people worldwide. The internet now has two to three, two to three billion. Prior to the current COVID thing, cruise ships had two to three million people on them. And let's say the total number of people on the ocean at any given time, you can mm -hmm. estimate at around two million. And then you've got, you know, sub 10 in space, right? So that mm -hmm. gives you a sense of the traction of various frontiers. Obviously, we're functional on the land. The internet's at two to three billion. That's pretty big. The sea is only at two to three million. So it's one one thousandth the scale. And then space is just... We're just obviously getting started. We have like 10 people there. Yeah, so it's infinitesimally small by comparison. That's right. So an interesting question is, can we use the internet to reopen these other frontiers? Like, can we do some kind of arbitrage there where you group on the internet, you reopen land, and you reopen land to reopen the sea, and you reopen land in the sea to reopen space, you know, something like that, right? So you start thinking about it as like a puzzle to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's almost hard to imagine a scenario where we expand into space, into the sea, 
and obviously continue to reorganize land at the city and, and country level without the internet sort of being the operating system by which that plays out. I even think with COVID-19, which we'll talk about in a moment, the level of international collaboration is like something we've never seen before. It's like a Manhattan Project, but probably on steroids in terms of the number of people that are working on it. And so the internet is the vehicle by which that becomes possible. And I really find your analogy around the UK to the US, the US to the cloud, real interesting. UK is obviously a tiny island and they ended up having very imperial ambitions across the world because they ran out of space. And then the US was sort of a fork off of the UK, same language, similar values, all of that. But now the United States is having its own problems so people are escaping into the cloud. That's just a very fascinating idea that I've never, I've never thought of before. That's right, it's basically a frontier where you know, we, we've probably had the cloud flippening, meaning you spend more of your time in the cloud than you do on the land. Oh, 100%. Switching gears a little bit, I want to talk about citizen journalism and, and COVID-19 and kind of the intersection between those two things. I guess I'll start by saying that myself and probably hundreds of thousands of other people that follow you, people that don't follow you, certainly owe you a debt of gratitude for sounding the alarm early on COVID-19 when the reports coming out of China were suspicious to say the least. Anecdotally, I think I started wearing an N95 mask at the end of January on BART on my commute into the city from the East Bay. All, until Basically until my last day in the city, which was pretty much the end of February. I haven't been back into the city since I think February 27th. So the only reason why I was doing that, and the only reason why at one point, there were a couple of weeks there where I was the only person on BART wearing a mask. Because this, yep. of course, was when the dictate from our governmental overlords was, do not wear a mask. They do not work. Uh, I didn't believe that then. I, I certainly don't believe it now. And so I bought like two or three N95s at Home Depot, and I was wearing them sort of dutifully for that full month until I, until I pulled the plug on going in. So personally, I very much appreciate you sounding an alarm in your tweets. But how are you able to spot that the prevailing narrative on this was so wrong so early? I mean, it seemed like maybe December, but certainly by January, you were on this pretty much first. So I think December was too early to have any signal in the US, I think. But the lockdown of Wuhan was an undeniable signal that lots of people saw. The thing about it, I think, was I took it more seriously than just another news event. And the reason being because China is not known for just sacrificing economic growth. It feels like a completely different world now, six months ago, but basically the entire legitimacy of the regime and the government is based on 40-something years of huge economic growth that they've delivered, and that's their social contract, essentially, with the public. For them to shut down the economy meant that this was something they thought of as so serious that I didn't know how bad the virus was. We were seeing crazy videos coming out of there. I still can't fully reconcile that with what has happened in the US because you know you have folks being at least reports of folks dropping down on the street and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things was you couldn't tell because it wasn't like the Chinese government was going to confirm those videos. And it certainly didn't seem like Western news outlets were really that interested in it for whatever reason. They just kind of thought of it as, oh, this crazy thing happening in China. And part of it, I think, is that Silicon Valley really has a healthy respect for what the Chinese can do. This is not to say, certainly, they've become increasingly totalitarian, unfortunately, over the last few years. It was, it was actually a more open society pre-2016, you know, not fully open, certainly, but, but now it's becoming more and more closed with a lot of, obviously, negative things happening there. But just focusing on the tech for a second, they, you know, they've built world-class companies, WeChat or TikTok. Those are actually better than the American products. Do I think that America can build a TikTok competitor? Sure, I do. You know, especially now that it's been built and now that it's out there, the UX is out there, people know it works. I, I think banning TikTok such that the, the data isn't going to China is, is potentially a reasonable move. But the point being that they're not really a developing world country. They're not a poor country in the way that, you know, some folks may sort of residually think of them. And for them to be struggling with COVID was a huge signal. So that was kind of number one. And then number two is, this is a kind of an important thing. A lot of people, when they read media reports, you know, some people just take them on face value. Then another group thinks of themselves as sophisticated and they will discount what's in the press by 50% or something. But something I've learned over my life is that the press can sometimes be wrong by a thousand X or more. Okay, so some examples, you know, Bitcoin is dead. Well, actually, no, Bitcoin went from $10 or $1 to $10,000, right? So they're off by a thousand X. 
or Facebook will never make a profit. That was literally an article in early 2013. Yeah. Facebook, or they Facebook paid too much for Instagram. Obviously they didn't. Instagram as a standalone business would be massive, hundreds of billions, or at least a hundred billion dollars. Or Paul Krugman said, the internet was never gonna happen, right? Like, I, I mean, that, that was not even that long ago that he said that in the New York that, Times. That's right, that's right. And, and same with COVID. It was like, you know, no handshakes is just, the only thing that was useful about that particular article was just that it captured a particular tone of condescension towards the outgroup that had nothing to do with, it was basically media people condescending towards the tech outgroup, even though it endangered their own lives, you know? Right. And this was something, you know, just for background for your listeners who don't know what this is, in mid-February, Recode published an article, you know, called No Handshakes, Please, that essentially patented tech people as paranoid for doing, you know, what we now call social distancing and so on. And it essentially had a bunch of folks saying, oh, the virus is contained. And it selected these folks who were like local government officials or whatever. And they never run a retraction or correction or apology for this thing that frankly endangered lives. Instead, what they did was they spent weeks and months, you know, first ignoring it and then going and pointing to everybody else. Oh my God, you know, Fox News got it wrong. Now, absolutely, Fox News got a lot of things wrong. Sure. In many ways, what happened was bad memes like, oh, it's just the flu, or masks don't work, or the virus is being contained. These bad memes started with folks in the mainstream media, and then they filtered out to Fox and so on, and they're still being repeated there. But the patient zero was, you know, like BuzzFeed and Washington Post perspectives and yeah, New York Times Recode opinion and, and so on. And Vox. Recode. Yeah, yeah. It was, there's a lot of revisionist history going on here, clearly, because the same folks that basically created or perpetuated these memes at the outset are now criticizing the people that still are buying into them because there's maybe a 60-day or a 90-day delay. And so you saw folks, and not to call anybody out specifically, but a local congressman here, he posted a tweet that was like, do not wear masks. And then it was like oh, yeah, 30 yeah. days later, 180-degree narrative flip. And it's, if you don't wear a mask, you're killing grandma. So <laughs> of course, no one believes anything anymore <laughs> because it's hard to know what to believe. I have sympathy for people that are even skeptical of, of the mask thing, even though I believe that Obviously, if you look at the societies that are wearing masks, whether it's Singapore or whether it's Japan or what have you, those societies have fared way better than the ones that do not wear masks. So I think the evidence is sort of overwhelming that in aggregate, they work. But I empathize with people that just don't trust the media for that reason. It's hard well, not the, to empathize with them. The fundamental issue is that what is selected for is a lecturing, hectoring, condescending tone of total certainty because there's no incentive for correction, right? Their business model is literally marketing themselves as the truth, right? The New York Times runs ads calling themselves the truth. But the problem with that is, well, did you print something false? Oh, no. Well, then it's kind of off-brand to admit a correction. A correction is considered a humiliation. Whereas with something like Git, if you get a pull request, that's actually considered good. You know, you, you want mm -hmm. software to be actively developed. It's assumed that there's hundreds of errors, some large and some small in the thing. And it's important to be constantly revising it and improving it, right? Not to say that there aren't serious bugs, but, you know, generally speaking, a project under active development is something you trust more than one that claims to have just, you know, been complete for all time. So I think one of the big issues here is it revealed the extent to which these folks who call themselves very certain about things really don't know what they're talking about. They're just kind of repeating experts. And the problem here is that there isn't any capability to do technical diligence. And when there isn't, then you do purely social diligence, right? That's really the core issue is we have folks who cannot do technical diligence writing about technical topics. That's sure. a fundamental issue. And there's others, but that's a very, very important one. And then what happens is that's happening without the asterisks and the qualifications. People should basically be like, you know, when they say, I'm not a lawyer, you should say, I'm not a biologist, but, right? Mm -hmm. Or I'm not a, you know, computer scientist, but this is not to be extremely credentialist. That's not what I'm actually saying. You could be somebody who didn't even have a high school degree and was a self-taught computer scientist, right? Yeah. However, if you lack a technical background in an area, and then you're confidently talking about it to a mass audience, then you have to do some kind of, you know, huge reversal. That's what's led to the present moment. Yeah. And I mean, this is called the paradox podcast. So I think it's, it's interesting to highlight different paradoxes that are all around us. I think one is that whenever you do rarely see a journalist 
put a retraction out and really put a retraction out. I don't mean like the lie gets a billion retweets and then the reply with the correction gets two. I mean, they really actually go out there and put their credibility on the line. It does the exact opposite of what people think it does within the realm of journalism. It builds tons of credibility. Like you said, when there's people contributing to an open source software project using GitHub and there's changes and fixes, that's healthy. That's what you want. That's actually literally, we think about like speech in this country. The marketplace of ideas is that. It's engaging with ideas that you're either mildly uncomfortable with or you disagree with. So you can edit and tweak your own thinking with new information. The problem is on the journalism front, right? Like you said, there's no incentive to do it. It's sort of like the rule is don't apologize, don't retract. People that are looking for honesty in journalism, they can't wait to praise you know, a reporter that posts a really honest retraction. And to me, when I see that, that gives them infinitely more credibility. So yeah, it's sad that we sort of are where we are. I've heard you talk about a more decentralized model for journalism. I think we're seeing the beginnings of that. I think what you did with COVID-19 and your own reporting, how do you see that model developing? And how can we compensate not only citizen journalists, but journalists that leave the institutions? I saw yesterday that Andrew Sullivan is leaving New York Magazine to start his own Substack. How do we facilitate more of that so there's more voices in the discussion that are doing quality journalism and citizen journalism? Yeah, so I actually tweeted on this. If you go to balajs.com, there's a tutorial there on how to gradually exit Twitter. And essentially, this is a paid newsletter, right? So it's something where you can self-host. And then what we can do is start networking websites together. And that's a new concept, right? Like currently, the way you think about websites connecting to each other is either a link or it's maybe at the API level, it's either extremely low overhead or extremely high overhead. But you could imagine much more traffic between sites where essentially a website was considered the analog of a profile. Mm -hmm. And so now you're fully sovereign. Nobody can deplatform you or anything like that. And your domain is like your profile, but we start rebuilding a new kind of link structure and connective tissue between websites. It seems almost like sort of the syndication model. Back when I was 19 or 20, I interned for a company that did AM talk radio, which sounds really anachronistic now. But they had certain radio personalities that were part of the company, and then they would syndicate out, right, other content to fill all the time slots. It seems like you could have a syndication model where some of the best journalists, citizen journalists, experts, what have you, and these could be full-time or this could be part-time work, right, where someone has an expertise that's outside of their day job. But their content can get syndicated across this new network of news websites in a way that allows for there to be more distribution, more reach, and maybe better monetization. Is that kind of a good analogy for what you're thinking about? Yeah. So I think a critical concept is that Chris Dixon's saying of come for the tool, stay for the network. Mm -hmm. So we would start this community first by having a critical mass of folks that have their own you know, paid newsletter slash website. And then we would go from that to start networking them together. And when I say networking them together, it can be a joint RSS feed to start. But ideally, you want to be able to interact with somebody on another website as easily as you can by hitting the like button. Yep. However, you might have a moderator of that connective tissue who is elected by that decentralized community, for example, right? One of the biggest issues with Twitter is the code on Twitter is more like the laws of physics than the laws of a government, meaning it, it defines how particles smash into each other, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, dictate any standards of behavior, really. You know, you can yell at someone, scream at someone, attack them, be hostile to them, be sarcastic to them. I think there's an alternative where we start to build a community that has physical levels of civility yeah. online, right? And actually set that as a first-class goal from the beginning that, you know, one of the bad things is that Twitter is now becoming real life, right? Twitter's incivility and mob behavior and craziness is leaking into the physical world. Mm-hmm. And so it may be when you talk about physical norms of civility, this sort of Oregon Trail generation has to remind people what that was, you know? And I think we'd have to build that online. And you start to get these decentralized media communities that become essentially like digital cities in embryo. And then maybe they can go and actually materialize in the physical world, like I was talking about. Yeah, it's totally fascinating to think about that. On a related topic, but a slightly different cut of the same idea, you had a tweet where you talked about every citizen is now a journalist or now equal to a journalist. Every company is now a media company. There are no double standards anymore. On that second point around every company is now a media company, in the realm of startups and building your own company from scratch, how do you think this notion that every company is now a media company applies? And I guess what I specifically mean is, 
how much should startups be investing in building sort of their own internal media operation? Or I'm, I'm in marketing, so the way I think of it is building your own owned marketing channel so you can communicate directly with an audience versus constantly paying for access through whether it's Facebook or whether it's advertising on someone else's podcast or whether it's getting a placement in someone else's newsletter. How do you think about that as it interrelates with the startup world and building companies and building an audience around your company? Well, I do think that it is now possible as a tech person to never talk to an employee of a media corporation or a legacy media corporation and still build a billion dollar business. Indeed, it's arguably the best approach. Jason has talked about this. A bunch of other investors talked about this. Uh, Naval, you know, Ben, and so on. It's simply not in your interests to talk to an employee of a media corporation because they're competitors of the tech industry and they're very hostile in general. Now, this is a general rule. There's always exceptions, but mm -hmm. as a general rule, you shouldn't be giving away free content. You know, right. you should think of it as, hey, how does this advance? my community or my company or the projects I think about, do I have editorial control? This is an interesting thing where, you know, Gen Z coming up is paywalling media corporations from below. What that means is all of them want to be YouTube influencers. All of them have their own channels. And so they often don't just say, yes, sure, go ahead, reprint my content. They'll say, hey, link to it or pay me. And that's very new because the thing is, there's different norms for how media corporations interact with each other versus how they interact with, quote, their subjects. You know, and the funny thing is when you talk about like the journalist-subject relationship, subject has two meanings. One is like the subject of an article, the other is like subject in the sense of someone to be ruled. <laughs> you yeah, know, what, <laughs> like a right, king like, and, their, and their subjects, right? Exactly, right? And it's an interesting overlap there. So where an employee of a media corporation typically thinks of themselves as having rights to do things to you that you can't do to them. And that's actually ending now with, with everybody being a citizen journalist. But coming back up to this point, a media corporation will not simply go and paste content from another media corporation on its site. Yeah. It needs to get permissions, right? It will sort of have a degree of professional courtesy in between folks who are employees of other media corporations. And so I think a very important thing is going to be to turn people into personal media corporations. Substack is like one version of this where you're actually getting paid to write. Certainly Twitter and the whole influencer culture is, is part of this as well. But once you're a personal media corporation, well, someone can't just copy your content and paste it. They have to actually license it from you. Mm -hmm. And you start kind of adopting all of these sort of norms of being like a journalist, being like a photojournalist, being like a reporter, and putting that into code where, you know, whatever you need, you want to generate like a Getty Images style thing so people can buy images from your site. You want to have licensing terms. All of that, I'm sure, can be done. I think Substack is probably going to roll out a bunch of those types of things. And that's a very different way of thinking about things because the back of the house is not usually suggested. You know, one of my points is media corporations are not the free press. You're the free press, right? As a citizen, you are the person who's supposed to hold everybody accountable, not just like tech companies or oil companies, but also media companies and everybody and, and their employees. And so that sort of slate of hand that equated a particular multi-billion dollar corporation with the free press is sort of like what's good for GM is good for America. That's not necessarily the case, right? So I think that this sort of rediscovery of the fact that every citizen is equal to a journalist, I think that's a very important thing. Now, you know, you'll get some counter arguments. I have folks counter arguing on Twitter, but for the most part, if you believe that a single developer can build a Minecraft or a Bitcoin or an early Facebook or an early Dropbox. I believe in the citizen journalist for the same reason I believe in the solo developer. And maybe the way to square the circle a little bit, and just to maybe take the other side of the argument for a moment, even though I am sympathetic to everything you just said, maybe the best thing we can do for journalism is actually to have this rebalancing of power and sort of this healthy competition between citizen journalists and more traditional journalists from the mainstream institutions. And I think that if you have this shift in power and you have a rebalancing and you have a check and balance on the fourth estate by, I had a conversation with Gary Tan a couple episodes ago about the fifth estate, which is what you're talking about, which is the rise of these citizen journalists. I think that's actually going to be good for institutional journalism as well, in the sense that it might finally force their hand to reform internally and maybe go back to some of their roots that were more about doing the hard work and trying to keep an eye on folks in power and not just dunk on people on Twitter and build your own audience and fit every story into a pre-existing narrative like they did in that Recode article where 
the article was already written. It was going to be an yeah. anti-tech piece. And it was just like, how do I put the pieces together to make that happen? Maybe the optimistic case, and I could be a little bit Pollyannish here, is that actually the rise of citizen journalism might also reform traditional journalism as well, if it rebalances the power as it should. Yeah. So I'm actually skeptical about traditional journalism being reformed per se by this. What I think we actually move towards, though I understand that's kind of a hopeful vision, I think we move towards a different equilibrium, which is oracles and advocates. Okay. Mm. So oracles are like crypto oracles. So one way of thinking about it is many articles today are wrappers around, you know, box scores or ticker symbols or tweets, right? You know, so sports articles are wrapped around box scores. Financial articles are often wrappers around tickers like so-and-so price was up today at the close, you know, that kind of stuff. And many articles are wrappers around tweets. And so those are three examples of large classes of content, which are essentially prompted given the input of this data stream, right? This feed of data, we generate a verbal narrative. There's actually a company called Narrative Science that does this automatically. So it'll turn your Google Analytics report, for example, or your financial spreadsheets into color commentary, Hmm. which is interesting because what it does is it gives a verbal overlay that looks at the most interesting trends and the biggest numbers. You know, in December, we set record numbers for this, but we were down on so-and-so in in Oregon because of X, Y, Z factor, right? That kind of thing. So one concept then is you have an existing equilibrium where there's a verbal layer on top of a data layer, right? The data layer is the facts. You know, people are not disputing the box score or the ticker or the fact that the tweet exists, right? <laughs> right. That's to say, and this is important, right? Twitter is now actually, you know, l- less trusted than it was even a few days ago due to these hacks. But for the most part, people think that if something appeared at twitter.com under this account, Twitter itself didn't edit it. And this person said it, whether or not it's right. true. So who said what, when, and often where, if it's geostamped, that's like four of the five W's who, what, when, where, why, and how. That's six if you include the how. You get the raw facts of who did what, when, and often where. And the context often gives you why. And sometimes you even have the how in the trivial sense of did someone post it from Twitter for desktop or you know iPhone or something like that. What's my point? Point is, given that raw stream of facts, you can generalize that to the concept of crypto oracles, which are cryptographically signed feeds of facts that are inputs to prediction markets. And I think we're going to get thousands of crypto oracles. And the future is oracles and advocates, where you have sites that are advocates, meaning just pure unapologetic activists that Mm -hmm. take those feeds and they craft a narrative from those facts. Yeah. So this happened at this time. I can prove it by reference to this cryptographically signed thing. Therefore, we should do X, right? Yeah. Here's how, here's how you should think about it, given the facts that the Oracle right. is already confirmed. That's right. So Oracles and advocates, right? Now, to your other point about like holding folks accountable and so on, I think that has to be sort of like a, something where everybody's got the gun pointed at each other, so to speak. Right, like <laughs> right, mutually assured doxing or destruction, something. Yeah, like that. or or journalism, right? You know, in the sense yeah. of it cannot be something where a media corporation has a right that a citizen does not. Right, that's not legitimate. So so long as speaking truth to power and so on includes that proviso that a citizen journalist is the equal, then you're in good shape. And I think that's a very important point because just even the concept of media corporations, people just don't talk about them enough because there's actually two kinds, right? There's legacy media corporations and social media corporations, and we do need to hold both of them accountable. Yeah, I think people like to just say, oh, I'm a journalist. This is the First Amendment. That's it. But the point that they work and they're employees of corporations, just like any other employee of any other corporation gets lost in the mix. And I think that was the point, the third point in your tweet around there are no double standards anymore, is to, again, rebalance things and to make sure that citizens have the same rights as journalists. And if that's the case, then you should have a more informed populace. You should have better information that gets put out into the ether. You should have better news articles that get written in general, because again, there's a rebalancing of how things should be. An important point, by the way, is a lot of this is based on Russell conjugation, where there's a formal double standard that one can opt into. You know, for example, if you join the military as a private you will take orders from a general, but not vice versa, right? That's something Mm -hmm. that both parties have opted into for their mutual benefit that they kind of organize in this hierarchical thing. There's a double standard there, but it's an explicit and formal double standard. There's also, however, an implicit double standard. That's kind of, you know, the concept of Russell conjugation. And the idea there is, you know, you dox and she leaks, but the New York Times investigates, right? Mm -hmm. And 
that is something where the same action is considered legitimate or illegitimate based on who does it as opposed to what is being done. It is license that is given by poetic license. And once you start looking for that and you see that in an article, you'll see that everywhere, right? It's, it's basically something where the use of the right adverbs and adjectives can describe the exact same thing in either a legitimate or delegitimizing way. And it will sort of melt people's brains because, you know, just as an example, it is okay for an employee of a media corporation to vitriolically criticize employees of tech companies online, but not vice versa. And the terms that are used for that, oh, if you object to it, well, you're thin-skinned, you're fragile, you're this, you're that, right? But they'll claim, oh my God, you know, this is so crazy. I'm being stalked and doxxed and, and whatnot. Now, the issue is, of course, that anybody who is attacked in the press will also have crazy people stalking them, you know, and doxing them and whatnot. That's what it is to be attacked, right? Like right. You, you, have a, uh, you have thousands of people going after you and digging through your stuff or whatever. So it's something where it's highly asymmetric, but that asymmetry comes from a double standard that's embedded in language. Anyway, I think that a lot of the stuff is now starting to be identified and it's starting to move towards the citizen journalism concept. I do think it's important to have a vision for the medium to long-term future, which is less adversarial. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like? Sort of like a tech media, you know, reconciliation or something. I think tech wants media to share our values and media wants tech to share our resources. And there's something there. There's potentially a win-win. And so what do I mean by our values? So, you know, for example, immutable money, infinite frontier, eternal life. Okay, so Bitcoin, Mars, life extension. And that's a slogan, right? You could have others like live forever or die. That's one I, I'm fond of. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the thing about it is when you talk about faster COVID testing, or you talk about fusion energy to stop climate change, or you talk about self-driving cars to reduce traffic fatalities, there's a lot of overlap in terms of goals. And what we want to do is find folks who support that in terms of their value sets. You know, they're basically technological progressives. And I think that those are the folks that we want to fund to make CEOs of their own personal media corporations that are values aligned. And I think that starts to reconcile this where you go from the sort of adversarial phase of 2013 to 2019 to a new relationship. So, you know, let me pause there. I think that sounds great. And I think the reason why moving towards that new future, that new relationship is important is because the stories we tell ourselves as a culture, as individuals, as a society, anything, right, really impact what we actually end up going to build, right? If we're yes. telling a story that life extension or infinite frontiers or getting to, those things aren't possible, if they're sort of mocked as this sort of stupid over-optimism of the tech elite, then we're definitely not going to pull it off. Not because it's not possible, but because we just won't believe it's possible. The belief that it's possible is integral to actually making these things happen. I think if we reach a more productive relationship between the tech community and the media, I think it will mean that we can accomplish more of what we all want to accomplish at the end of the day. I think so, that's right. And I think that, that means kind of building a tech-powered media where we recruit those folks who are aligned with values, both from the US and overseas and so on, because tech is international. And yeah, you know, to give three examples of that, by the way, you know, the Kinect was inspired by seeing Minority Report. And I believe that Oculus came out of Ready Player One. And I believe that Gates did the, you know, cheap toilets in Africa in part by seeing Nicholas Kristof's article on the need for that, right? Wow. So those are three examples that are pretty big ones that I'm familiar with where there's an inspiration that came in this fashion. And, you know, there's an interesting model where you have a writer, like imagine somebody like Mike Arrington, right, who did TechCrunch in, in this very important period in the mid-2000s. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he himself probably inspired, you know, billions of dollars in value creation where someone saw an article there and was like, wow, this is awesome and went and started their own thing. Yeah, without um, a doubt. Without a doubt, right? So what would be interesting is if he had a relationship with a bunch of funds where folks who wanted to start something based on this would fill out a form like the YC application or equivalent, and then he would get a cut of the investment if an investment was made and of the equity, you know, if, if the exit happened. So for example, somebody, you write an article on Fusion, okay, for your outlet, and you only got a thousand readers. But one of them is somebody from, you know, MIT, who is actually capable of building this new Fusion technology. And they submit an application to YC or another, you know, firm that is set up to do this, and they get accepted. And so within about three months, 
the author of that Fusion article gets actual cash in the bank because they get a cut of the investment. And then in maybe five years or 10 years, they get a huge slice of money if that fusion energy investment is actually successful. So that's a model where the folks who write inspiring and technically accurate content that actually creates wealth for society actually get a piece of that. Right. They get to share in the upside and the incentives are are realigned, which is important. The incentives are realigned. That's exactly right. So, you know, as opposed to right now, where essentially there's an incentive for trying to get a movie that like denounces Facebook. I mean, look, there's, there's a huge difference between constructive versus destructive criticism. And constructive criticism typically comes from a place of alignment of some kind. Now, to be clear, there's tons and tons of criticisms I have of Facebook or what have you. But there's a difference between, okay, we need to make it more private. We need to make it more decentralized. We need to give more user control and so on versus... Um, hey, it needs to become more oppressively controlling over user behavior, what have you. Those are two very yeah. different angles. More censorship, more exactly. censoring the people that we don't actually want to speak. That's right. I think that sounds great. And I'm optimistic that hopefully we can move in that direction, but I guess only time will tell over the next uh, three to five years or more. The last portion of the podcast, these are questions that I ask every guest. You can take them in any direction that you want. The first is just a riff on the now famous Peter Thiel interview question. What's something that you believe that most people don't? I'm sure you have many answers to this question. So maybe pick one that's different than what we've already uh, already discussed. I think that, you know, cryptocurrency will be seen as the most important thing happening in the 2010s by future historians. That's a lot of things that that's out competing. It's sort of like how if we think about the 90s now, what was yeah. the most important thing happening? We do think it was the internet. Yeah. However, at the time, that was not certainly widely appreciated because obviously there are political things going on. I mean, look, the fall of the Soviet Union was a big deal, right? That's 1991. But much of the stuff that happened in the US, there were obviously events that were national events. But in terms of what had very lasting long-term significance, if you have one thing in the history books, it's going to mention that, right? Yeah. And I think in the same way, cryptocurrency is going to be thought of in retrospect as the most important thing that happened in the 2010s. One follow-up question there. So in the universe where that scenario plays out. What happens between now and say 2030 that makes that possible? What happens in terms of innovation or use cases or, or value props for, for crypto broadly? What, what goes right, I guess, is the question. What goes right? Well, I mean, it's already kind of going right in the sense of it's at 100 billion or whatever. But I think what we need is crypto to start to be baked into applications so that it's being used under the hood for things, you know, Mm -hmm. and it is already starting to be used. And this is important that people don't get speculation was installation, meaning uh, crypto is not purely a computer science thing. You need also an install in people's heads to value this stuff like you value a dollar. For example, you know, if I hold a blue piece of paper in front of you, that's not considered to have value. But if I hold a green piece of paper, your object recognition module kicks in and you're like, oh, this has value, right? You've been trained by thousands of television shows, movies, personal interactions, et cetera, to treat the green piece of paper as having value, whereas the blue piece of paper doesn't, Mm -hmm. which is something we kind of take for granted, but it's actually pretty important. And so what's happened over the last several years is all of this speculation, price speculation, has trained people to value this thing. And that was critical because once they value it, only then can you build an economy around it. Okay, next question. What's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't or a problem that you think people pay too much attention to? I think people pay too much attention to the daily dumb stuff happening on Twitter. I think that's a huge, <laughs> yeah. huge issue. And related to that, a problem I'm thinking about that people don't pay much attention to is I think that Twitter is actually the government of Western civilization right now. In the sense of, you know, people talked about digital democracy. Well, we've got a version of it. It's sort of like digital mob rule, you know, where if it's popular enough, it happens. And Twitter is considered a straw poll for, if not the population, certainly a segment of elite opinion that is capable of of shaping things, right? So you're having an election happen every day, every minute, Mm -hmm. every hour on Twitter. And the issue though is it optimizes for what is popular and it gives you zero feedback on what is true. And so one of the things I think a great deal about is replication over repetition. Unpack that idea. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So when somebody shares a news article with me that I think is important, I ask, did you independently replicate the facts? Most people did not. And it stops them short because 
it's the same thing that happened in science for many years. This whole concept of the reproducibility crisis. The reproducibility crisis is like, okay, there's a few articles in psychology that were published. And actually, many of them don't hold up when you actually try to reproduce them, but lots of people mm. have cited them. So Bitcoin has this concept of number of independent confirmations. So you need different miners to confirm that this particular transaction happened before you actually treat it as truth and then incorporate it and base further decisions and capital allocation decisions on that basis. So rather than a thousand RTs, you could imagine an interface that said, here are five independent replications of this fact. And ideally, those are from five folks who you know don't often agree with each other on other things. Yeah. So there's some tension built into that, which is healthy. Exactly. Or at least they are, people sort of already do this where they kind of trust a tribal elder. And if that tribal elder agrees with something, then, you know, they're like, okay, I believe it. Right. You know, whereas they don't believe if it comes from the other side, but we haven't formalized this yet. Yeah. It's sort of offline and it's not like in any sort of like a ledger. It's just something that's in the social ether that people kind of pick up on when they're trying to grok, you know, what reality is, what the truth is. Yes, um, that's right. Okay, last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Manage yourself before managing others. I love that idea on first hearing it, but practically in your life, what does that sort of mean? It sort of means that you need to achieve a state. This you know, isn't always necessarily a permanent state. It's sort of like working out or whatever. But you need to be able to set and hit your own targets before going and telling other people what to do. Definitely. It's sort of like clean your room before going and trying to change the world or whatever the, the Jordan Peterson references. It's similar. That's right. But this is a little bit more of an interpersonal thing where if you are not managing yourself and your own time well, then you're not by example able to lead others. Now, again, it's actually a lot like working out where it's something that you have to kind of get your head into that zone. You know, if you're an active manager, I have this concept of the loop, right? Where you wake up, and you essentially write up your daily loop. It's like, I will work out and I will do this much time for emails and what have you. And then I've got this much flex time uh, and I need to talk to these five people on these five projects. You essentially have this loop that you run each day. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the things I would do when I had projects to drive, you usually can't really drive more than three projects at the same time. Frankly, even more than one is hard. But I would take those three projects, I'd take their names, call them A, B, and C. And I'd put that on my phone background, okay? Hmm. And I'd clear everything else. And the reason is, Every time I looked, basically the first thing I would do when I got up is I would try to drive A forward, right? As I'm like walking to the gym or whatever, right? That would take four hours, right? Driving A forward. Then whatever time I had left, I would drive B forward. And then that's another four hours of answering emails or pinging people or whatever. And then I try to drive C forward. And of course, the day is going to come and capture you towards the end of the day. There's going to be interruptions. But if the first thing you do each day is just drive A forward, you sometimes have something happen. Uh, I like the idea that there's a level of self-accountability that I think allows you to hold others accountable, especially if you're in any kind of a leadership position. So you hold yourself accountable first, and that actually gives you the moral authority to even bother holding anybody else accountable. Yep. Well, Balaji, this has been an awesome conversation. Thanks for carving out time again to chat. If folks want to connect, obviously they can, and they should follow you on uh, Twitter at Balaji S. Uh, what's another great way to, to get in touch other than Twitter if there is one? Oh, just go to balajs.com and there's a subscribe button in the upper right. I'm starting to finally move off of Twitter to self-hosted newsletters. It's a free newsletter, but basically any payments that go into it will use to fund daily prizes. Love it. I'm going to sign off right now and I'm going to go subscribe. Encourage everybody to do the same. But thanks so much for, for taking the time, Balaji. All right. Cool. Thank you very much. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute-length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode 12, I chatted with Mike Solana of Founders Fund about having the courage to speak your mind, self-censorship, escaping mimetic competition, and the power the stories we tell ourselves have to dramatically alter the future. I think it's really important to just speak honestly when you believe in something or you have a feeling about something an opinion about something and it feels sort of uncomfortable to share it that to me says that 
there's something bigger than you happening that is a problem. If it's within reason, if it's to your best reasoning, like a perfectly reasonable thing to say, or you, you think that you have an insight that is valid, then yeah, I just think you have to share it. I, I think that this culture of not speaking is sick and yeah, we need to heal it. It's super unhealthy. And on a related note, you seem to have a really strong I would say a bullshit detector for when the dominant narrative is wrong. And obviously sometimes you're gonna have false positives, false negatives, whatever. And I know you also care a lot about the stories that we tell ourselves culturally. I think I heard you say you care almost more about the stories we say to ourselves on an individual level or a cultural level around technology than the actual technology or the actual building that we're doing. Yeah. Because it's almost like a leading indicator. Can you talk a little bit about it? Is. Where did that originate from? I've always believed in the power of stories to affect change. I mean, in college, I studied this specifically, storytelling, the way we convey information differently in different mediums and how these stories shape people. There's like a religious cut to it. I think it's like all the secret stuff that Oprah's obsessed with, I'm kind of into, like the power of positive thinking and this and that, because I've seen it in my own life and in the life of, honestly, my mom. My mom came from a pretty crazy background. And from the time that I was a little kid, she always told me the story of her upbringing and everything that she had gone through. She came from a pretty dark place and rose up and accomplished a lot in her life. And I always knew that it was the story that she was telling herself. She told a story about all these things that happened in her life in which she was the hero of this crazy drama. And it started you know, at the bottom and it would end with her on top. And she was always so proud of her story and she loved to tell anyone about where she came from. One, I believe that I internalized the lessons of that story, perseverance, you know, the American dream. If you don't like your life, you can change it. It's your responsibility to change it, all those kinds of things. But then I was really obsessed with the way that, that story itself was almost like a spell that was affecting everything around her and us in her family. It was really, really powerful. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter, at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.